0: You've got your Bibles turned to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to look at the last part of Acts chapter 4 today, and we're going to talk a little bit about being passionately devoted to doing life together. There's a children's author by the name of Judith Viorst. And Judith has made a reputation of writing books about a particular young man named Alexander. And Alexander is a young man that has what you would call a pessimistic outlook on life. And Alexander wrote a poem through Judith Viorst that I thought was interesting as I thought about our message this week, and the title of the message is, If I Were in Charge of the World. I don't know what you would do or what would happen if you were in charge, but this is what Alexander would do. If I were in charge of the world, I'd cancel oatmeal, Monday mornings, allergy shots, and Sarah Steinberg. If I were in charge of the world, there'd be brighter night lights, healthier hamster, and basketball baskets 48 inches lower. If I were in charge of the world, you wouldn't have lonely. You wouldn't have clean. You wouldn't have bedtimes. You wouldn't have don't punch your sister. You wouldn't even have sisters. <laughs> if I were in charge of the world, a chocolate sundae with whipped cream would be a vegetable. All 007 movies would be G, and a person who sometimes forgot to brush and sometimes forgot to flush would still be allowed to be in charge of the world. Now, what would you do if you were in charge of the world for even a moment? I mean, think about it. What if you were given charge of this world now I realize that that's not a practical thing there's nobody in charge of the world but imagine if you could if you could do anything you were that you were given control of this world and whatever you said went for a period of time what would you do as I thought through that this week as I read that 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 poem as I thought about our message that we're going to talk about here this is what I came to mind if I could change anything in this world I would change the way people feel about the church. You see, for some reason, the church has gotten a bad reputation in recent years. I'm not talking specifically about this church. I'm talking about the church in general. And if we're honest with ourselves, some of the reason the church has gotten a bad reputation is self-inflicted. We've kind of brought that on ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, there are some things that we ought to correct if we want to see the church be what it's supposed to be. If I could change anything in the world, what I would change is the perception of what church is. Not just for non-believers who look in disgust or bewilderment. I would change what people in the church thought the church was. You see, because I talk to people all the time and I ask them about church or this church or their church or a church and more and more I find that people who are part of churches don't have a clue what churches are. They think of the buildings or the programs or the budgets or the pastors or the music or the committees or the fellowships or the things that we do Scripture teaches us that church is something much different than any of that. The truth is that a church will include all of that, but the truth is that a church is much more than just coming and getting together and talking about some things. As I thought about what I would change about the world, as I thought about what I would change about people's perception of the church, I came to this passage in Scripture in Acts chapter 4 on Wednesday nights. Let me just give a plug for our Wednesday night program. We meet together from 6 to 6.45. We have prayer meeting, and then we, we talk about Acts. We're walking through the entire book of Acts, and we were actually in Acts 4, and I was reading through that passage of Scripture, and I came to those last verses, and it reminded me again of what a church It's supposed to be. As I read that passage that we're going to read in just a moment, I realized that if church were being done like it's supposed to be done, we would meet so many needs of the people in our community that the reputation thing wouldn't be a problem. You see, a church that is actually living what Christ calls us to live is a church that gets rid of loneliness. It's a church that gets rid of apathy. It's a church that gets rid of being purposeless in life. And the truth is, we have the best story to tell that you can imagine, and we should have the best relationships within these buildings, within our relationships with each other, that you can imagine. And our world is desperately searching for something like that. This is supposed to be a place where we come together or we go out together and we live together, we grow together, we cry together, we laugh together, we struggle together, we succeed together. And people in this world are searching for that. I don't know if you saw, but three weeks ago on the Sunday edition of the Tennessee and there was a story about something called Second Life. I think we've got a picture of the logo for Second Life. Second Life is an online community that started a a couple of years ago. Eighteen months ago, there were 130,000 people in this online community. Today, there are over 9 million. And what Second Life is, some of you may have Second Life accounts. My guess would be most of you don't. What Second Life is, is that you create yourself in another virtual world. Now one of the great things about second life is you can be whoever you want to be. You want abs that are strong and washboard-like? Just punch a button. You've always wanted long, flowing, blonde hair. Just click a couple of places. You've lived your life, politically correct term is vertically challenged, and you suddenly want to be six foot six, You put that in and that's who you are. Now here's the thing that's amazing about Second Life is it has become an online virtual world. There are 9 million people that are subscribed to it and at any time there are millions of people in and out of it walking around, talking to each other, interacting with each other, buying things together. And the Tennessean story was actually the story of a guy who in his normal life just has a normal job but in Second Life is a musician that has his own fan group in his own fan club, and makes three to $400 a month selling his music in Second Life. I read this week of a church that has put a church on Second Life. There were two major television shows this week that had characters involved in Second Life. Now, all of that is what in the world are people doing on Second Life? Here's what one of them says. There's a real sense that when you depend on geographical space and real time for our interactions, it limits us, especially if you happen to grow up in lower populated areas. The fact is that Internet links people across geographical space means that people who before all of this stuff might not have felt, uh, been able to find friends or feel very alone now find people who are just like them. And then this is how the, a professor concludes. He said, what we find in Second Life is a lot of people are actually having meaningful and important relationships exclusively on the Internet. Now, whether you know what the Internet is or not, or whether you're on it seven hours a day, here's the truth about the Internet and about Second Life. If people were finding meaningful relationships in First Life, they wouldn't need a Second Life. And I believe that if the church that God has called us to be, would provide those meaningful relationships for those of us in this room and for the community that wants to look in on us. If we were passionately devoted to doing life together, then there wouldn't be this need for second life. So this morning, I want to talk about doing life together in first life. Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 32. It says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What we see in those few verses is an amazing testimony of a group of people doing life together. And there are three things that I want us to see about what we are going to be passionately devoted about doing life together that so you will see if we are going to live the life that God intends for us to be, if this church is to be the kind of church God intends for us to be. And the first thing is, if we're going to do life together, we are going to have to be committed to unity committed to unity look at verse 32 again it says all the believers were in one in heart and one in mind i'm going to read that again all the believers were one in heart and one in mind Remember, this is all the believers that have come after Jesus has ascended back to the Father. This is the disciples that were left over, the apostles from when they were with the ministry of Jesus. And one of the most amazing things about what we find in the book of Acts is even in Acts chapter 4, when this church has grown from just a few hundred people to thousands of people, literally it tells us at the beginning of chapter 4 that there were 5,000 men. If you double that for women and children, you're looking at 10,000 thousand people that would have been a part of this fellowship, when you look at all of that together, what you find is that they were in one mind and one heart. Now what's amazing is if you look at that and you think about what happened earlier in the lives of the disciples and the apostles, you will find that unity was not a part of who they were when Jesus was around. Do you remember at the Last days of Jesus, they're all sitting around the table. Jesus is telling them about what's about to happen. He's given all this information. And it talks about in Scripture that the disciples were quarreling among themselves about who was the greatest. Now, think about that scene if you're Jesus. Here you are pouring out everything you've tried to build up for the last three and a half years. You're at the last meal. You know what lies ahead. Your destiny is here. You're giving everything you've got. You're giving your final message to them, your final prayers. And in the midst of that, you hear them going, I think when Jesus gets His kingdom, I am going to be first in charge. Now, I don't think so, Peter. You talk too much. I think it's going to be Andrew. It's not going to be Andrew. He can't. He doesn't have the stomach for it. And while that's happening over there, probably in the corner somewhere, two of them are off to themselves going, can you believe those guys, what they're doing over there? Can you hear how they're talking to each other? They're not even listening to what Jesus is saying. And there's quarrels all among them. In that book of Acts, you have the Holy Spirit come. You have them begin to move together, to work together. Persecution begins to happen. And it says in the midst of all of that, that drives them to one heart and one mind. And I'll tell you this, if this church is going to be the, the kind of church that God calls us to be, if we're going to be the kind of church that God intends for us to be, the one characteristic that you will have to find here is there will have to be a real sense of unity. Paul was committed to unity. He talked about it often. If you look at his scriptures and you'll find it on your handout, it says that that in Philippians two two, that Paul says to that church in Philippi that he loved so much. He said, make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. He says, listen, I love you. I love you as a church. If you're going to continue to be what God intends for you to be, this is how you complete it. You have the same love being one. In Ephesians 4, 3, he would tell them to make every effort. Now that's one of those words that if you look at it in the original language, the word every means every or all. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. if I just get real with you for a minute and be honest with you about where I see us going and what I think will happen, let me tell you this. If we begin to realize the... Imaginably more than we can ask or imagine that I think God wants to do in our midst. If we begin to see people come and become part of who we are, if we begin to see people and give their lives to Jesus, if we begin to see people turn their lives back to Him, if we begin to see this place fill up and have to do other things and move to other and have other services and have all of that happen, which I think is all part of God's plan. Let me tell you the one area that Satan is going to attack right from the beginning, and it's our unity. I'll be honest with you, I've been here less than two months. And even as I sense the excitement that is happening in this midst of our congregation, as I talk to you and I get excitement from you about what God is doing, as we talk about all the things that God is doing in our midst, I sense that there is still some efforts by the evil one to tear us apart. And what I will tell you about that is that it is never God's intention to split churches. It is never God's intention to split churches. Now, I'm not saying that there is this unity here that's going to lead to that, but I will tell you this, if this church begins to move in a fashion that brings glory to God and sees people come to Him, Satan will attack our unity. He will do it. I, I, I live in West Tennessee all but three, and three years and two months of my life. And the two largest churches in West Tennessee have been rifled by disunity in the last two years. Two churches that were doing unbelievable things for God. And Satan saw an opportunity to seize on that. Some of them you've heard about. It's been in the news. I moved to, to Nashville. We move to this area, to Goodlessville, and we pick up the Tennessean. And and I hadn't been here a week before there's a lawsuit at one of the largest churches in this area. Now, I don't know the particulars in most of those situations. I know some of them. But I do know this. It is never God's intention to take the church's business into the public arena when it's that messy. And what happens when that happens is it just stunts what God is doing. It says in Scripture that these men who were from all different walks of life, you can look at the eleven apostles that were remaining, Mattathias that came along, they came from all different areas and places, and they came together and it says in Scripture that they were of one heart and mind. John Wesley said the most remarkable thing about this passage of Scripture is that we see that their hopes, their loves, and their passions joined as one. So how do we maintain that unity? If those attacks are going to come, how do we maintain Let me give you two things real quickly. First of all, we crucify ourselves. If there's been a recurrent theme in this series about what we're going to be passionately devoted about, the recurrent theme has been that this church, that our lives are not about us. And one of the main reasons that division happens in the life of people of God is because suddenly Satan begins to get people to focus on what they like or what they want to do or their program instead of focusing on God's agenda. If you will notice, most of the times when those things come out in public or when things happen within this church or when disunity begins to creep up, it's almost always with a sentence like, I or we Well, I talked to some friends of mine, and we just don't feel that this ought to happen. And they don't take it to the people that could address it. They take it to their other friends, and there's discussions. One of the worst inventions for spreading dissension in a church is the telephone. Or the prayer line, whatever you call it. Sunday school classes that say, I, I just think we need to pray about something. I just don't feel that this church is doing blah, blah, blah. I, I, just, I just think we need to pray about something. You know so and so. Well, he is just not doing what he ought to do in this church. And you may not share that in a Sunday school class, but I know that it happens on the phones. Unless, goodness is was just completely unlike any other place that I've ever been. And you have side conversations and side issues and suddenly all this stuff begins to well up and you have a groundswell of people and they're all talking to each other and they're all encouraging each other. That's right, it's got to happen, it's got to happen. And before you know it, you've divided it into us against them and then it's no longer a church. It's a group. And the best way I know to begin to make sure that that unity stays is that you crucify yourself. I had a youth minister growing up. He wasn't actually my youth minister. I was in the children's group, but he was a youth minister at our church. And he used to say that every morning he would get up and he would look in the mirror. And as he was shaving or washing his face or combing his hair, he would say out loud these words. Now, he was a single guy, so his wife he didn't have a wife to think he was a little crazy in there. But he would say these words. He would say, this morning I have a funeral for myself. This morning I officially kill my desires and my agendas and my hopes and my wishes for yours, God. I lay them on the altar before you and this morning I declare in this place that as I look into this mirror and I'm saying it to myself, it is not about me, it is about you. If we look across church in general, what we see is that church loyalty is at an all-time low people jump from place to place and here to there when pastors change or when programs change or when they find one that fits their need better or when they find one that has more of what they're looking for. Youth, adults, boomers, busters, churches are coming up for all kinds of people. When it says in Scripture, what I love about this is there were people in this group of believers that were in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s and there were people in every age bracket imaginable that had different tastes and desires, but they came together as one. And I think the picture of a church It's not a church for singles in their 20's. It's not a church for busters. It's not a church for retired people. It's not a church for youth. It's not a church for young adults. It's the church for God's family. In one mind. And that means that I have to crucify what I desire. I think of Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus, being the very likeness of God, did not consider that something to be held on to. And you know what I think about when I think about that passage is it really is that He's grasping onto it and Jesus says it's not something I can hold on to. What I think about it is Jesus had every right to stay in heaven and hold on to that glory. It would not have been a sin. It would not have been terrible. He had every right you could imagine. Imagine, to stay right where he was and not give his life away on a cross, but he chose to look past his rights and say, I'm going to do this for them. And in a church, sometimes it means that you have every right to say something, but you give up that right for the betterment of the whole group. That's what crucifying yourself means. Paul says that he wants to know him and share with him in his sufferings. And if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we've got to crucify ourselves, replace pride with humility, rest prestige with service. And here's the second thing we've got to do. If we're going to be people that are focused on unity, how we're going to maintain that is we're going to focus on Jesus. You know, I mean, the early Christians came from all over. It tells us in Scripture they came from every country imaginable in Acts chapter 2. But what it tells us is that even though they had different food, clothing, language, customs, they agreed on one thing, and that was the name of Jesus and who He was. And as long as we're focused on Him, unity will be there. A.W. Tozer, a great pastor of the 20th century, gave this illustration when it came to focusing on Jesus and unity. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in a heart nearer to each other than they could ever possibly be where they become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. The idea there is if we come and say we're just going to be a church that focuses on fellowship and being together, what we miss is that we need to be focused on God, and when we focus on Him, it draws us together. In premarital counseling, I will often talk to couples about the triangle illustration. And what I say in the triangle illustration is that if you want to draw closer together as a couple, then you must first draw closer to God. And I say that as you stand on each side, if you were to say that we are this far apart and we desire to grow closer, if you find a focal point in Jesus at the top, as the two of you draw closer to Him, you automatically draw closer to each other. And the same is true whether it's two people or it's four hundred the closer we draw to Him, the closer we draw to each other. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 says, All the believers were in one heart in one mind. We maintain it by crucifying ourselves. It's not about us. It's not about our programs. It's not about any of that. It's not about youth. It's not about senior adults. It's not about Sunday school class. It's not about WMU. It's not about brotherhood. It's not about worship. It's not about building. It's not about deacons. It's about Him. Here's the second thing that we see. If we're going to be people that are committed to doing life together, we must also be committed to taking care of each other. We must be committed to taking care of each other. Look what it says in verse 32 continuing. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 34, one of the most remarkable verses in all of Scripture says, there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. If we're honest with ourselves, this passage is about as far from us as we can imagine in our culture. It is strange for us. It sounds weird to us that there would be a place where they would just come and they would place all their land at the feet of the apostles and say, just give it to whoever needs it. We don't worry about financial accountability. We don't worry about records. We don't worry about receipts. We're not trying to write it off for taxes. It's just here. But what is amazing about this passage of Scripture, more than how weird it is to hear all of that, is that it says in there that there was not a needy person among them. On your handout, you've got that from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, verse 34, and I put it there to highlight it, because it's just so amazing to hear that there was not a needy thing upon them. If they owned lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought what was that to the church. Quite simply, the early church was made up of people that had a whole lot of stuff and some people that had not much stuff at all. But when it came down to if there was a need in the church, now this is not communism. This isn't everybody just putting in a pot and getting the same amount out. It's just suddenly there's a need in the church. We find out there's a need and we fill it. You have to realize I know we're going to vote on a budget in a little bit. They didn't have budgets, they didn't have finance committees. They didn't have people that were looking over all the sins. They didn't have church treasurers. They didn't have uh, stuff they were reporting. It was just the kind of thing where we've got a need. How can we fill it? And one of the members said, well, I've got some stuff. I'll give whatever I can. And the truth is that Scripture teaches, and what we understand there is, not only does that mean that they didn't have any need physically, because that's the way we take it immediately, is that what it also implies through the original language is there was absolutely no need physically, emotionally. Or spiritually. And the truth is, the way that the church can be so countercultural is to say that this is the way we live. You see, what Satan says is, what's yours is mine. What our culture says is, what's mine is mine. But what God's people ought to say is, what's mine is yours. They took care of, Of each other. Let me just say to you, real quickly, that most of that care did not come when all 5,000 to 10,000 of them met together. And here's how I know that it can't. There is no way that you can be taken care of in your need in this place, emotionally, spiritually, physically, whatever. There is no way that just coming to worship where there are 400 other, other people here can meet the need that you have in your life. That can only happen in small groups. Now, as a church, we realize that there is no way that we can meet your needs. Just me standing up here talking to you each Sunday, just singing songs, there's no way we can meet needs. And the only way that we can meet those needs is to group you into small groups. Now, there are all kinds of new small group ministries out there, home ministries, all this stuff. We still at this church have what I think is the best small group ministry that has ever been invented. It's called Sunday School. And we've got a strong one here. And I don't know if you're an tender of Sunday school. You go, you don't go. I can tell you this. You can find a great Sunday school here. And if you're not involved, you need to get involved because that's where we take care of each other the best. The truth is that as your pastor, I would love to be a part of your life. I would love to celebrate with you. I'd love to cry with you. I'd love to be a part of everything you're doing. But the truth is that God in my humanness has not allowed me to be a part of 450 lives. I can't do that intimately in the way Scripture desires for us all to have accountability. But in groups of 10 to 12, you can do that in a real meaningful way. This church, one of the things we're going to be passionately devoted to doing is doing life together. And if we're going to be passionately devoted to doing life together, then we're going to be passionately devoted to making sure our small group ministry that we call Sunday School is active and vibrant and doing what Sunday School is supposed to do. That's why in a few weeks, we're going to have a Sunday School training We're going to do it on a Friday night and a Saturday morning. We're going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to be here. Tom's going to be here. We've got some curriculum. Steve and Kathy Moore are putting that together. And if you're involved in Sunday school in leadership or you think you might be involved in some time, we want you there because our passion is to do Sunday school right. Now, Sunday school by itself, just as Sunday school, doesn't solve the problems that we have with loneliness and not connecting. Sunday school done right solves the problems that we have with loneliness and not connecting. We need to learn to invest in each other in small groups. I think that's on your outline there, that we've got to learn to invest in each other. Now, how do you do that? Well, most of the time when I say the word invest, you think immediately of money. And that is part of what's happening here is they were giving money to the church. They were tithing. In fact, most of these people were doing more than the tithe. They didn't consider any of it to be theirs. Sometimes when we talk about tithing or giving to the church, we say, make sure you give what's God's to God. Well, the truth is, if we gave what's God's to God's, none of us would have anything because we would give everything back. Because God owns it all. He's just letting you manage it for a little bit. What Scripture says is they were bringing it and they were giving it and they were freely enjoying giving it. The picture here is of a joyous celebration where they came and they placed it at the apostles' feet. It wasn't like they had their head down going, "Oh great, I got to give the money again." It wasn't like they felt guilty because the person next to them wrote out a check and they think, "Great, I got to see me giving money again." It wasn't like they got in Sunday school and were making sure everybody had their offering envelope. What was happening is they were giving it because they genuinely desired to give. And they brought it and they placed it there. But they invested in each other's lives in other ways as well. Maybe you can invest in the life of someone who's widowed and lonely. People in this church that have lost loved ones, that have lost their spouse, and they just need a friend. And your investment might not be financially, but you can sit with them, talk with them, enjoy their company. Maybe there are people in this congregation this morning that you look on the outside and it looks great, but as you get deep, there are some real emotional times there, and all you need to invest is your ear time for their mouth time. Not solving any problems, just listening. There's some in our community that like heat or food or clothes or money. And I know this church is great about giving to those kind of needs, but maybe you haven't invested in that way. Someone has said the church is an investment club. Our Our capital is more than money. We invest our time, our energy, our talents, our hopes, and our cash in our church. What would this church look like? If it was a place where no one lacked. If it was a place where no one had need. A place where we invested ourselves in each other. And they could say about us, there was no need among them. I believe that God has given this church everything we need to accomplish His unimaginable plan for us. The question is, are you giving what He's asked you to give? And sometime we'll go in depth about spiritual gifts, but one of the things I love about the pictures in the New Testament of the church is it compares us to a building, that each of us are bricks or part of the building. It compares us to a body where each of us are members of the body. It compares us to sheep where each of us is an individual sheep. It makes these comparisons, and in the midst of all of it, what it means is that each and every one of us plays a vital role in this church. I believe that if you are here, if you're a member of this church, God has called to this church... Maybe you're here this morning and you're a member God has called to this church and you haven't joined us yet. But if you are someone that is called to be a part of this church and He's asking you to join with what we're doing, I believe He has a unique thing He wants you to do that nobody else can do. And you don't have to get caught up in spiritual gift lists and tests. Just ask yourself the question, what am I passionate about? What has God gifted me with the ability to do? What do I, what do I want to see happen? How can I plug in? Sometimes in churches we're real good about this all to happen, but we're not willing to give of ourselves to see it happen. And God's given us all gifts and abilities we need to plug in. So we see in this early church that they were Committed to be unified. They were committing to take care of each other. And on your handout, there's a little place that says, My investment. That's left blank. There's not going to be anything on the screen about it. That is for you. Take home, right now, whatever you want to do. If God is laying something on your heart that you're to invest, whether that's financially God saying you need to give this gift, whether that's emotionally you need to do this, or whether that's some spiritual gift, some talent, some ability that you have that you haven't been using, God wants you to use in this place. That's a place for you to write it down. Here's the third thing that doing life together involves. It involves growing the family. Verse 33 says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord, and much grace was upon them all. Now what that tells us is there was great power and great grace. Now what's interesting is the word that is used there is a word that is brought directly into our language. It is the word Mega. M-E-G-A. And if you need to know what mega means, you can, you can tell if you were watching TV and they announced a mega jackpot for the lottery. I know it's a Baptist church, we don't play the lottery, but if we did, if they had a mega jackpot, that would mean it was big, right? Really big. And what it says in Scripture is because they were, and I want this to be understood, because they were unified and taking care of each other, suddenly they had mega power to take the gospel to other people. You see, there are a lot of churches that try to take the gospel to the other people, but when they bring in, they see a church that is divided and not taking care of each other, and they say, why in the world would I want to be a part of that? Those first two go with the third one. Jesus, in fact, told the disciples that the way that people would know that they were His disciples were that if they would love one another. And what we have to ask ourselves is, as we prepare to take this message to a group that is out there, as we prepare to to really reach out into this community, are we making sure that we are doing life together? One commentator has said that maintenance of the group was not the primary consideration. Above all, it was a witnessing community and for that reason they enjoyed much grace from the lord this week as i was preparing this message and i was thinking about what god could do in our midst i just kept going back over and over again to this whole idea of a second life And I just kept going back to how sad it is that the church has so given up the responsibility of doing life together that people are going to an inanimate computer to get online, to build themselves, to walk around to stores and buildings and have conversations with people that are somewhere else. They don't even know who they are, but they're so longing for connection that they're doing it on the computer. And I couldn't help but think in an area like Goodlettsville, where people are moving all around this church, all in the two counties around this church, three or four counties that surround it, that people are moving here all the time. And as they're moving here, a lot of them are coming from places completely disconnected from here, moving away from family, moving away from friends, and they're moving to this area. And when they get here, they are going to be desperate for people that will reach out and say, we love you, we care for you, we're going to take care of you, and we want you to know about the Jesus that gives us the ability to do that. There is no better opportunity to reach people than by meeting them where they are in friendship and love. And as I've thought about that this week, I couldn't help but get excited about the fact that if we will simply be the church that God has called us to be, not a building, not a group, not a ministry, not a program, not an activity, but if we will be people that do life together, focused on the mission and the person of Jesus Christ, then we will see people come and have their lives radically changed by the gospel. And I don't know about you, Maybe that doesn't mean anything at all to you. And if it doesn't, then I pray God will change your heart. But there is nothing in my life that gets me more excited than seeing people have their lives changed by God. On Wednesday night, I shared a couple of prayer requests of a friend of mine named Bill. Bill is a guy... That uh, lives in Ripley. He was a guy that was not a member of the church when I came to Ripley to pastor. And Bill uh, came to church after some, some things happened in his family. They they came to our church and they joined, and they we just we became really good friends. Mainly, we became good friends because we played golf. That's what we did. And when I was going through the whole process, Bill and I would have these conversations on the golf course. And as I was getting ready to leave that area, I thought about how our conversations changed from the first time we played golf to the last time we played golf. One of the things that we did in the last week and a half I was in Ripley, Bill called and said, we're going to play golf together one more time. And I remember thinking how he had grown spiritually and thinking how great that was. Well, Bill, not long after I left Ripley, found out that his mom had cancer. They were trying to figure out all of that. They took her into the hospital. They did the testing and all of that. They brought her home on a Friday. On Saturday, he was in the emergency room with his dad. And on Monday, they found out his dad had cancer. I called Bill and I just talked to him when all that was going on. And I said, Bill, what's it like? And he said, it's not good. And they told him his dad had two weeks to two months to live. I talked to Bill last Sunday. His father passed away a week ago yesterday. Bill was telling me about his last days with his dad and that Bill had a job where fortunately he could kind of come and go a little bit. He works at a bank and had been there for a long time and had a lot of days saved up. And he, he went and he sat beside his dad and he shared with him. He, he said, I took this Sunday school material we've been going over and I just talked to him because I, I asked him right when we found out, I said, Dad, what's your relationship like with Jesus? And all Dad could say was, I got baptized when I was a boy. And as we tummed into it, I realized he didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And Bill said, I just began to read him out of Scripture and out of our Sunday school lesson what we were doing. I was basically teaching him our Sunday school lesson from the week before. And he said, I know that finally towards the end of a two-week period, I said, Dad, I know you're tired of me talking to you about Jesus, but I just care about you. And he said, every opportunity I got, I shared with him who Jesus was. And Bill told me that he said, Brother Lyle, I just want you to know. And I could tell on the phone last week he started to crack. He's a strong guy. He started to cry a little bit. His voice was cracking. He said, on the day that my father passed away, I sat by his bedside. I was the last person spending the time with him. And I looked him in the eye and I said, Dad, what, what do you know about Jesus? And he said, Bill, I asked Jesus in my heart. And he said, I I, I seized that moment. I said, Dad, he goes, Bill, Jesus is going to heal me. And he said, Dad, he's not going to do it here. He goes, no, he's not going to do it here. But he's made me whole. And I'm comfortable with my future. And Bill said to me afterwards, Brother Lyle, you'll never know what our conversations meant and how it gave me the courage to share my faith with my dad in those last days. When I got off that phone, I just praised God in heaven for changing the life of a man named Bill who in turn changed the life of his own dad. Now those kind of stories may not move you at all. If they don't, then I'm going to pray they do. Because my goal is to be a place here in this church where we do life together so passionately devoted to following Jesus that people's lives are radically transformed. But it only comes through unity. It only comes when we say it's not about us. It's, it's completely about you. It only comes through unity. It only comes through taking care of each other. And it only comes through reaching out and bringing other people in. My question to you this morning is, is that the kind of church you're a part of? And if it's not, if you say that's not who we are, then the place where it starts is with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never joined this church. You've been coming for a long time. You're a part of a lot of stuff, but you've never joined it. And you say, finally, I'm going to do that. I know that it's just a step of membership and it's just a sheet of paper, but in God's eyes, it's a symbolic act of joining with what we're doing here. And it's meaningful for who we are. If that's who you are, then this morning, maybe what you need to do is come and to give your life here and say, this is where we're planting. Maybe you're one of those people that hadn't been sacrificing yourself and it's been about your agenda and your wants and your desires. And this morning you need to come and make this place an altar between you and God. When you sacrifice it here and say, God, I'm moving forward. I'm ready to do life together. Maybe this morning you're somebody that just says, it's time for me to plug in. I'm a member, but I had not been plugged into a Sunday school or any of that, and it's time to do that. This morning my question is, are you ready? As we continue to move forward in what God intends, are you ready to do life together? Let's pray together.